Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobhana Xavier, and I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast channel, which interviews authors who have written new books that are relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it is broadly defined. I hope you are safe and well wherever you are, and I thank you so much for tuning in today. In our episode today, we are joined by Ziad al-Marsafi, who is a professor in the Department of Comparative Literature in King's College in London, England, to talk about his new book, Esoteric Islam in Modern French Thought, Messignon, Corbin, and Jambé, which was published this year, so in 2021, with Bloomsbury Academic Press. The book maps the intellectual and personal genealogies of three French specialists of Islam, Louis Messignon, Henri Corbin, and Christian Jambé, and the ways in which esoteric Islam, here broadly thought of Sufism, Shi hermeneutics, or Islamic philosophy, and much more, informed their academic and intellectual projects. The first chapter situates Messignon's travel and his studies of Arabic and Sufism, especially of his monumental work on Mansur al-Halaj, which informed his conceptualizations of hospitality and desire. Messignon's student, Corbin, would also turn to the intellectual traditions of Sufism, she thought, and metaphysics to grapple with the idea of vision or theophany in his intellectual work. Finally, Christian Jambé, a curious and interesting figure in this book, a Maoist atheist, would return to the revolutionary history of Alamut of the Nazari Ismailis to think through ideas of political change, eschatology, and resurrection. Throughout the rich and detailed chapters, the book maps the central place of esoteric Islam in the intellectual life of the 20th and 21st century France. The book will be of interest to those who think and write about esoteric Islam, Islam in the West, Islamic philosophy, Shiism, and Sufism. In our conversation today, Ziad and I spoke a little bit about his intellectual journey, what led to the writing of this book, um, and also we went through each of the chapters to discuss some of the important themes, such as the ideas of um, desire as they relate to Messignon, the ideas of theophany and vision as they informed Henri Cobrand's um, thought process, and also finally notions of political revolution and the ways in which um, the historical moment of the Alamut was evoked by Christian Jambé. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ziad Al-Marsafi about his new book, Esoteric Islam and Modern French Thought, Messignon, Corbin, Jambé. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk to you about your book. Um, as you may know, we have a tradition on our podcast to start our conversation with a little bit of an autobiographical note. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about um, what your intellectual journey has been, some of your previous scholarship, and uh, what led you to writing this particular book on esoteric Islam. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Um, before I answer that question, how much time do we have again? <laughs> well, we try to keep it under an hour, but maybe you want to tell our listeners what might be of interest to them. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try to be brief. So the intellectual journey itself uh, is kind of all over the place. I, I had a career as a French academic, mm. and then about 15, as, as a sort of as, as a specialist of France, of early modern France. And then about 15 years ago, I uh, started working on questions at the intersection of literature and religion, uh, and specifically the religion in question being Islam. Um, so I wrote a book on the translations of the Quran in early modern Europe, the Enlightenment Quran, that came out in 2009. And then a couple of years later, I wrote a book about the, um, the incidence of Sufism in contemporary Arabic fiction. And the question at the heart of that book was basically, if you're a novelist, if you're a creative writer, why would you uh, use Sufi ideas or themes or indeed texts as many, as many writers did? So that was that. And then uh, shortly after I finished that book, I was approached by the two series editors at Bloomsbury who published Esoteric Islam, and they invited me to contribute a, a book to their, to their series. And I was, of course, delighted. I said yes. And in the back of my mind, the plan was that actually I'd done so much research for the, the book on Sufism in the Arabic novel that I could, uh, and there was so much leftover material that I hadn't used, that I could simply somehow repackage that material and use that as a foundation for this book. That was a big mistake. Um, it was, <laughs> I, I, I was so wrong. I, I just, um, it, wrong not because it, it's not true. I mean, yes, uh, some of the much of the material that I read for Sufism in the Arabic novel did inform esoteric Islam, but and there is a but the um, the book didn't quite go as planned at all. Initially, the plan was to write a book about Sufism in the West and the many varieties of engagements with Sufism uh, in the Western Hemisphere in, in, in popular culture, in ritual. In, religious thinking, and so on. And it quickly became clear that that would be impossible given the parameters of the series. The book had to be a certain length. It had to, be, uh, it had to have a certain orientation to fit within the series and so on. So I, I realized I couldn't do that. And then after a couple of years of struggling with this problem, um, some people were kind enough to write books about Sufism in the West. And so they, they spared me the, the trouble of having to do so. Um, and uh, you yourself actually were, were engaged in, in one of those projects. So that was, you know, uh, that was very kind. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> so, so that freed me actually to think about what sort of book I, I'd really like to write. And so what ended up happening was that one of the chapters, what, what was going to be one of the chapters in the earlier, in the earlier plan, which was a chapter on Massignon, Corbin, and somebody else, and I hadn't quite figured out who that somebody else was going to be. At the time, it was just Massignon, Corbin, and then X, um, became basically the book, uh, only instead of a chapter, it became three separate chapters. And as I worked out my ideas about Massignon and Corbin, it became clear that the, the next figure in line really had to be uh, Christian Jambet, who was, who was a student of, of Corbin and who has done more than a lot of people to propagate the ideas of both Massignon and Corbin and his own. And so that's how... Um, that's how it happened. But it was a long, meandering adventure. And I have to say, the fact that the book exists at all is, is a testament to the patience of the two series editors and uh, the team at Bloomsbury, who were, who were really very kind. So uh, this is you know, going out officially 
in recognition of their support. Mm. It's a very fascinating book. And and I think, yes, of course, there's so much um, things that it seems that we have shared similarities in terms of research topics. And so it's kind of interesting to see how this book fits within the larger trajectory of your previous scholarship. Um, and I guess it's really about this kind of um, framework of esoteric Islam, which is the title of the book or the first mm-hmm. part of the title. So can you give us a sense of what, like, what are you encapsulating or what the umbrella term esoteric Islam is incorporating? Because I think this is what is um, the main thread of the, the, the book that then engages with these different figures as you've just introduced. So I wonder if we could talk about a little bit. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, so I... I use the term esoteric Islam as a translation of the Arabic al-Batin, which is um, usually uh, translated by the esoteric. But the esoteric understood as the internal, the hidden, uh, and also the, the more authentic thing that should be revealed at some point as a result of spiritual effort or intellectual effort or both. Uh, and uh, as you know, the esoteric is usually paired with or opposed to the the exoteric, the external, the obvious, the that which appears um, in Arabic as Zahir. And so uh, but my, my interest really is, is in al-Batin as as a category that unites these three, because it covers not only uh, you know things that are are hidden because of a variety of reasons, political, theological, whatever, but also um, because it's it's a it's a convenient umbrella term for a number of theological and mystical movements, so uh, it it includes things like Sufism, it includes things like uh, Illuminationism, Shraki thinking, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think uh, Corbin would say that that nearly all Shia thinking is is uh, revolves around the Balkan, revolves around the esoteric uh, in one way or another. So in that respect, it just became much easier to to use the, to use the esoteric the term esoteric Islam rather than uh, something like Sufism in, in Messignon and Shiaism and Sufism in Corbin and Ishraqi thinking in all three and so on and so forth. So uh, it's it's one way of thinking about it is is as a peg on which one might hang all sorts of ideas and movements and, and themes and styles and so on. Mm-hmm. And it, it and it does precisely that. It's such a productive terminology or um, conceptualization to frame the book. And um, so, before we get into maybe some of the chapters or the three chapters and the, each of the figures and what kind of um, thematics they were engaging with, what would you say is the broader um, the intervention or the general thesis of the of the book project is? The the intervention is actually twofold. So on one hand. There's the obvious intervention, which is to say that I want to introduce English language readers to the work and ideas of these three thinkers. I wanted to do it together. I wanted to put them together in the same book. So there, as I point out in the introduction, there have been other treatments of Massignon, of Massignon and Corbin in English, but I really wanted to underline the intellectual genealogy that unites them as a key part of uh, 20th century intellectual history. And this brings me to the second point, which is that I'm really hoping that people, once they read this book, will understand that thinking about Islam and thinking about culture in general in the West are not two separate things. They are and have been for a very long time in the same space. And they interact in all sorts of interesting ways. And, and some of those ways are, are explored in the book, but, but some of those you know, are, have yet to be worked out and I think we could uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm hoping that people will will uh, pick that up and, and run with it. So let's get into the first chapter. And your first chapter is on uh, Messignon. And I wonder if maybe for some of our listeners who may not know who that is, um, if, who is he? Um, and perhaps then we could go into talking about some of his relationship, particularly with the figure of Al-Halaj um, and Arabic. Um, so let's let's talk about who Messignon is. Sure. So Louis Massignon was, uh, in my view, and in the, in the eyes of many, the most important French student of Islam, French scholar of Islam in the 20th century. He had a, an encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, of religion, of languages, of ideas, of philosophy. Um, he, his involvement in Islam and, and in the Arabic language was deeply personal, uh, very passionate, at times very dangerous. Uh, but it was something that really was his whole life. It wasn't just a job for him. He was for many years professor at the Collège de France, but he was also an activist. He was often sent on uh, missions to various parts of the Muslim world, either diplomatic or, or cultural cooperative missions or otherwise. And he really is somebody who is striking both by his presence in France. So whenever you go to France and you talk to people about you know, Islam or whatever, many people will at least have heard of Massignon even if they haven't read him. Um, whereas outside France, that's not the case. And I think that's really a shame. People in, in Islamic studies will, of course, have come across his name. But I was really struck by the number of people who, uh, sort of outside Middle Eastern studies, outside Islamic studies departments, who are interested in, in Islam or who are interested in, in Francophone literature and culture and contemporary France, who don't know anything about Messignon. And that, I think, is a real shame because he, he repays careful reading. He's a really fascinating thinker. And um, he crops up in, in the most interesting places. So Edward Said, for example, had a, has a great essay about Massignon, where he contrasts him with uh, Ernest Renan. And if you know, if you've read Said, you know that he doesn't think much of Renan. Uh, but whether or not you agree with Said, I mean, there's a whole debate to be had there. The, uh, his admiration for Massignon was just, uh, you know, unbounded. And I think it's it's really uh, significant that that particular part of the world, the text and the critic, which is where where it appeared, hasn't really been picked up on by by students of Said. So you know, I mean, I, I teach Said every year in my classes. And I always tell people they should read the world, the text and the critic, but uh, for a variety of reasons, they always uh, gravitate towards Orientalism, and then that's it. So I'm really hoping that uh, that that. You know, either this show or the book or both will at least encourage more people to read Massignon because he was really something. And some of the themes that you discuss in this chapter, as someone who's engaged a little bit in Massignon, I found really kind of productive and fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one one that I keep thinking about is this idea of desire, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think the other one is hospitality. But can we talk a little bit about a desire here, um, especially in terms of I think. Um, it seems a little bit based on his travel and his experiences and explorations and part of, um, you know, quote unquote, the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, his relationship with Al-Halaj, um, partly coming from his own Christian ethos and how he projected onto Halaj, yeah. um, the study of Arabic. Um, so there's a lot of things happening here and perhaps also based on his own um, sexual orientation, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So desire here is really fascinating for Messignon. And how is that kind of playing into maybe the broader question of esoteric Islam or kind of his you know, broader project here? Sure. Well, let me, let me start like this. Most of the time when people do mention Messignon, it's in relation to uh, a line from Al-Hallaj. So it's not something that Messignon said, but it's a line that Al-Hallaj said, which is 
uh, in Arabic, anan haq. Uh, so literally translated, that would mean I am the truth. But uh, Herbert Mason, who was one of Messignon's translators, has a much better translated translation, which is God is in me as the truth. Now, my contention is that in order to make sense of this statement, it's one of those ecstatic utterances. It's a shat, so it's, it's not something that should just be uh, quoted, quoted and, and left at that. Uh, you really have to set up a, an interpretive framework with uh, around two poles, one of which is desire, the other of which is hospitality. Um, and it is only then that you can begin to understand how, how God can be in the self and how the self can give itself over to God. Um, Messignon grew up in a, in, I mean, he was born in 1883, so we're very much at the fin de siècle in Paris. Uh, his father was a sculptor. His uh, his family was was quite well off, and there were always artists and writers in in the uh, in the entourage. Um, when he met the French novelist uh, Pierre Huysmans, who was best known for his novel Arbour or Against Nature, usually described as a symbolist novel, but I think of it actually as the beginning of a conversion, uh, because if you read the stuff that he wrote after Arbour. It's very much the story of a conversion of how he himself became uh, a mystic and, and ascetic and so on. So um, Massignon was, was deeply influenced by all that in two ways. First of all, he, had, he was incredibly well-read. Uh, he knew a great deal about art, about literature, about any number of things. And at the same time, there was this opening onto what might come after art or what art was pointing to. And what it always seemed to point to was the sacred. And so um, with that in his mind, years later, when he uh, went to Egypt and then he traveled to Iraq on a diplomatic mission, he met uh, Luis de Quadra, uh, who told him that, who, with whom he fell in love uh, and, and who told him that in order to understand, you have to give yourself. Now, what does it mean to make a gift of oneself? What does it I mean? You know, you, it's a very ambiguous statement because on, on one hand, it, it invokes the language of sexuality and hospitality and hospitality as sexuality. On the other hand, uh, it almost sounds like it's an invitation to sort of fling oneself on the other, which is simply not, you know, mm-hmm. not, not, a, not, not quite what, what he had in mind. But it's in moments like these that Massignon um, begins to formulate his understanding of language and hospitality as ways of dealing with the other. And then uh, during the course of the First World War, uh, sorry, before the First World War, um, on a trip to Iraq, he, uh, he was uh, on an archaeological mission. He was accused of being a spy, which was something that hit him very hard. And he was really, uh, he, he suffered from this, he had a nervous breakdown. Uh, he had an experience that he called the visitation of the stranger. And the stranger in question is both God and Messignon. So he says the stranger was uh, like me, but veiled. Uh, the stranger is the lover. The stranger is the, the truth and so on. And having emerged from this experience, having recovered from this, this breakdown, um, he really dedicated his life to uh, mysticism and desire and hospitality as the three vertices of the triangle that, that within which everything has to be inscribed. And this was really the thing that, uh, I mean, this is, the, 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 this is the, what you have to have in the back of your mind when you think of desire. Now, coming to Halaj, when he wrote his thesis on Halaj, um, the, the, the moment that something clicks is when he reads the, uh, 
the, the verse by Hallaj, uh, one of Hallaj's poems that begins, Al-ishq fi azal al-azali min qidam. So the uh, you know, longing is in the pre-eternity of all eternities from time immemorial. So basically, not only is uh, desire primordial, but it is everything. And once we take that on board, we begin to understand that we are made of desire. And desire connects us to other people. Desire opens the door to language. Desire opens the door to hospitality. Um, and then things start falling into place. So in order to understand the other, we must speak to the other. But we must make room for the other. We must make space for the other. And all of this gets worked out in his monumental four-volume biography of Al-Hallaj. So what I'm trying to do here is to say that to understand, to understand Al-Hallaj and to understand Massignon on Al-Hallaj, I'm not saying you should ignore the statement, uh, I am the truth, for which Al-Hallaj is best known. But what I am saying is, you must bear in mind that it's built on a foundation, on an understanding of desire and language and hospitality. And without those three, you're, you're not going to get it. You're going to miss something about, uh, about both Al-Hallaj and about Messina. It sounds like it sounds a bit I think I rambled there, but you can tell. No, me. it was great. I'm, I also wanted to just pick up a little bit on the hospitality aspect of it. So I know I started by asking about desire. Can you say a little bit about hospitality um, and yes. the role that it played for him? Yes. So in my reading, hospitality and, and desire, um, sorry, hospitality and language always go hand in hand. And uh, I did something in this book that I've never done before, and I'll probably never do again, which is I, I tried to coin a neologism which is hospital language, mm-hmm. uh, that this is, you know, you, you can't, um, the, the, the line about understanding that Luis de Quadra says to, to Massignon, that in, order, that in order to understand, you have to give yourself or give of yourself. This is already a moment which uh, language, because what they're talking about is understanding Arabic and understanding Islam. Um, so the understanding of language, the acquisition of language, the use of language and hospitality go hand in hand. Furthermore, there are many points in Massignon's corpus where he makes much of the anthropological aspects of language. So at one point he says that it's it's really a big deal, the word he uses is enorme, that we salute strangers, that we salute strangers linguistically, that we use language to welcome people into our space. Uh, we, of, we, of course, think nothing of saluting strangers. We just think, okay, well, you, know, you see people on the street, you say hello, big deal. But for, for Messignon, this is really the moment that captures the nexus of hospital language and desire. Um, furthermore, the question of hospitality is not simply uh, you know, a, a matter of uh, having people over for a meal. It really is a question of complete exchange, social and anthropological, with profound political ramifications. So it has, it has uh, consequences for the way we think about migration, the way we think about refugees, the way we think about all sorts of contemporary problems. During Massignon's lifetime, it was at its most uh, fervent and at its most intense when he wrote about the problem of refugees uh, in the post-war period. And it was something that, uh, that n- never really left him. Um, just to take one anecdotal example, he was... He was involved in the many uh, in the many marches that took place toward the end of the Algerian War of Independence in France, and at one point in 1961, the year before he died, so he was, by this point he was really quite elderly and frail. Um, he thought nothing of uh, joining the marches, both for Algerian independence and for creating a more open France. 
um, to the point, and, and under the impact of police violence, he nearly lost an eye. So this was a very brave man. This was somebody who, who believed very strongly in hospitality and opening up spaces to other people, and in doing so through language. In, in, and he, he believed very strongly in language as a hospitable mechanism. And he never gave up of, uh, his, his uh, dream, his fantasy, his fervent belief that uh, what he called the Holy Land, what we would call Israel-Palestine today, should really be the most hospitable place on earth. That it, that it was a kind of kindergarten for humanity rather than the uh, war-torn and segregated space that it has become today. This chapter in the uh, concept of hospitality was very interesting to to think of in light of the current politics, not only globally, but particularly in France, I would say, yeah, um, yeah. and perhaps something we could come back to later. Yeah. Um, in chapter two, you shift to um, one of Mr. Nyon's students, uh, Corbin. Can you tell us a little bit about who he is? Um, I'm sure uh, some of our listeners may know, but others may not. And, and then sure. perhaps we could talk about some of the themes that you draw out in this chapter. Absolutely. So Corbin was a uh, Louis Massignon student, but I think he would be better known to more people, some people in France as Heidegger's first translator, um, and given the influence of Heidegger on, on continental philosophy in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, it's, it's probably the likelier route. Um, Corbin was, like Massignon, a completely fascinating figure. Uh, perhaps the biggest difference between them was that uh, Corbin was uh, a committed Protestant, and his Protestantism came through in a lot of his writing, although not so much. Well, well, we'll get to that later. Um, the the really interesting thing, thing about Corbin is that a he was uh, an excellent uh, student of German, uh, which one would have to be if if one was going to translate Heidegger. He took part. Uh, he regularly attended the uh, seminars that were organized by Kojev on the reading of Hegel. Uh, and as is well known, those seminars united all the leading lights of what we would call literary theory today. So uh, Bataille, Lacan, Queneau, and so on and so forth. But what's interesting is that Corbin was the only one whose German was good enough that he could regularly challenge Kojève on his reading of Hegel. And when we see the incidents of Hegel in, in Corbin's work, uh, we, we realize that it's really nothing like the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Hegel that appears in Lacan or in Bataille or elsewhere. Um, and having mastered a lot of uh, East Asian languages with, with alarming speed, um, he started working with, with Massignon as a, as a thesis student. Massignon introduced him to a Sohrawardi. He gave him, there's this sort of very, uh, there's this oft-repeated anecdote where he, he, Massignon gives him a, a scroll and says, you know, this might interest you. And, and the scroll, of course, is, is uh, a text by Sohrawardi. And immediately, uh, uh, Corbin starts working on uh, studying and translating Sohrawardi and uh, Heidegger simultaneously. And so uh, one of the consequences of this is that we see in some of the manuscripts, the drafts of his translations of Heidegger that have recently been brought to light by uh, two French researchers, um, we see a lot of Arabic words in the, uh, in the margins. This is particularly uh, significant because, I mean, the one thing you know that everybody knows who's, who's tried and, like me, failed to read Heidegger in the original is that he completely deforms the German language. And so it's really telling that Corbin uh, uses Arabic as a way of negotiating that, that deformation of German 
and of making sense of the um, the arguments in phenomenology and ontology that Heidegger was producing at the time. So uh, he was really, uh, again, a really phenomenal figure. And uh, like Massignon, he was somebody who was very well known. I mean, his name crops up in, in the strangest places. Uh, for instance, in uh, Jacques Lacan's seminar on ethics, which is probably one of his more widely read seminars, there is there's a, a a passage where he, he alludes very clearly to Corbin's book on Ibn al-Arabi, uh, probably because Lacan was very intrigued by the use of the term imaginary, the creative imagination, and so on. Um, and then there's another text that was published more recently called The Triumph of Religion, where he, where Lacan reenacts the meeting, uh, or rather parodies the meeting um, that we find uh, between uh, Ibn al-Arabi and Ibn Rushd Averroes, uh, that, is, that is narrated in, in one of in Corbin's book, on the Arabi. Um, and again, it's, it's really not something one would expect to find in a text by Lacan, but uh, at least we, we know where, where it comes from. Uh, what, as for what he's trying to do with it, I'm still not very sure, but, uh, but it's there and the readers can check it out if they want. Um, we also know that uh, Hal Bloom was a, very, was a big fan of, of Corbin's. He wrote a very interesting preface to the English translation of, of his book on Ibn Arabi. So again, uh, we're, we're, th- we're really talking about somebody who is uh, sort of encyclopedic, meteoric, and uh, as the French say, incontournable. There's no getting around him if you're interested in questions of mysticism or phenomenology, and uh, or indeed Shia Islam, which became uh, which became his the, the the thing with which he's most frequently identified. Mm. And again, such a rich rich chapter. Um, mm. And I think there's so many aspects that you're drawing from, as, as you mentioned, um, she hermeneutics, uh, Ibn al-Arabi. Um, here, I think, whereas the first chapter with Massignon was um, really about um, desire, the theme that you're dealing with here or is the idea of vision mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with Corban. So can you say a little bit more about this? And, you know, if he was drawing a lot of it from um, she hermeneutics or Ibn al-Arabi or, um, and how did vision kind of form a central um, aspect of what he was drawing from um, esoteric Islam? I don't know if that makes sense. It does, it does. So, I mean, one, one major difference, I think, between Massignon and, and Corbin is that Corbin is, I don't want to say impatient, but there's a kind of immediacy in Corbin's thinking that, that you don't really find in Massignon. Uh, Massignon develops things carefully and, and in a way that's almost uh, precious, uh, you know, without without exaggerating too much. Whereas with Corbin, it's all, we're always getting straight to the point, and and the point is very hard hitting, and uh, it sort of bursts into view, as it were. So vision for Corbin is both a uh, both well, it's immediate, of course, it's a, it's an immediate physical experience, but it's also a metaphysical experience. And it's the combination of the immediacy, the immediacy of vision, you know, uh, with the eye, and and metaphysical vision with the soul or with the mind, that seems to be driving much of what he's getting at. Um, on the second point of of, the, of the, the metaphysical vision, he does. There is a very important interview with Corbin, uh, with a man named Philippe Nemo, where he actually explains he uses vision as the link between his interest in Heidegger and his interest in. Uh, in esoteric Islam. So, and the way he says this is that there is a text in uh, in esoteric Islam that is well known to all, named Kashf al-Mahjoub, or the revelation of the hidden, the revelation of the mystery. And uh, what, the, what the text promises through uh, a certain method 
is to initiate the reader into the lifting of the veil and into the revelation of certain other things, into making certain things visible. And what Corbin sees there is a version of uh, truth as uncovering, or aletheia, which is central to Heidegger and many other, many other people writing in his wake. And so for, for Corbin, really, vision is something that happens both, uh, as I say, physically and metaphysically. And the aim of any proper hermeneutic method should be to lift that veil. Now, just because the veil has been lifted and just because somebody can see something doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make sense of it or be able to make sense of it. And so the ability to understand, the ability to actually engage this hermeneutic framework has a lot to do with the person doing the interpretation. And here is where Corbin's understanding of uh, Protestant, small p, theology, um, of a personal God, and uh, his reading of Shia hermeneutics comes together. In other words, there, there has to be a, uh, a transparency of the person doing the interpretation, both to themselves and to the text. And that transparency can only happen with the proper spiritual training. And when I use the term transparency, I am, of course, alluding to, once again, a term that's used by Heidegger in Being in Time. Heidegger speaks of Durchsichtigkeit, uh, which is something that, that is related as much to the being of the interpreter as it is to the phenomenon being interpreted. Mm, okay. It's very fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm really I'm think, looking at the time, but also really wanted to get into chapter three, partly because this is the figure that I've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of really fascinated by um, Christian Jambé, but also um, the story that, you know, he's a French Maoist and just yeah. kind of revolutionary <laughs> ethos. I'm just, I'm like trying to be patient and work through all the chapters, but I also want to just jump into chapter three because I'm just sure. so curious about this person. Um, so let's just do it. So can you tell yeah. us a little bit about who this curious human being is and how he fits into this kind of lineage that you're um, setting up for us? All right. So Christian Jambé is, uh, to put it, you know, to put it bluntly, the nicest, most wonderful, most encyclopedic Islamologist uh, in, in France and in the world. Uh, he is, uh, and I say that only, I say that without any exaggeration. He uh, was born in 1949, um, which means that he was, when the events of May 68 occurred in France, he was just old enough to be able to take part in them and to live them fully. Um, unlike a lot of people who took part in the events of May 68, however, I think Jean Bay was both uh, more intelligent, better read, and more committed to his positions at the time. He was selected to go to China uh, shortly afterwards. And this was a time, of course, when not just anybody went to China, not, not like it is now, uh, to attend a rally with Mao Zedong. Um, so this is somebody who was uh, a true believer and somebody who was willing to do anything for the cause. But his understanding of the cause was that it was something that would make the world a better place. This is true of most revolutionaries. However, he also understood that he wanted that the world was going to become a better place by changing us, by changing people in the most intimate part of their being. So it wasn't simply a cynical question of calculation and strategies and positions and so on. It really was revolution understood as a conversion, both personal and collective. And this is something that that doesn't leave him for the rest of his career. 
Um, shortly thereafter, he joined the Gauche Proletarienne in France in the early 70s. He was a very active member of that. Um, and again, sometimes he had to take risks that were really quite, uh, quite extreme. But as the truth about the totalitarian regimes uh, in, in the USSR and, and, of course, in China came out, he, he found it unbearable and he, he abandoned the Maoist position completely. And even now, when he, when he talks about the subject, he says, you know, every time I discover, because the research is still ongoing and, and uh, we're still finding out more and more about what happened under Mao. Um, but he, he says that you know, he, he often feels he has to make a mea culpa every single time that, that something new comes out. Uh, and we discover more about the horrors of those years. So uh, what, what I find attractive about him is not only that he's knowledgeable and, and generous, not only his political activism, but that he's willing to admit that he made a mistake, which is something that a lot of people, no matter how capable they are, simply don't seem to be capable of doing. Um, and I think this, this makes him really uh, you know, one of the, the a really unique thinker in, in that respect. I mean, so just to continue the story, uh, by the mid-1970s, he had decided that it was time to completely let go of everything that he thought he knew and to practice what in the Renaissance would have been called the learned ignorance, la doctinorance. Uh, he sat down with his, with his friend Guy Lardreau and effectively deprogrammed himself from Maoist thinking um, and at the same time relearned all of, all of philosophy uh, from from Plato onwards, from uh, from the Greeks onwards, um, and in the process, he discovered not only Western philosophy, of course, but non-Western philosophy and specifically uh, Islamic philosophy. This led him to Henri Corbin, with whom he signed up to be uh, a doctoral student. He became Corbin's uh, not only Corbin's student, but really a disciple and uh, somebody who did a great deal to make sure that Corbin's work was. Uh, was read and and uh, and distributed as widely as possible. Uh, he went on to have an academic career. I think he he's he's still at the École Pratique des Hautes Études, uh, but I'm not sure if he's still there full time. Either way, he's uh, he is professor of, of Islamic thought. What's really interesting about him, though, is that he's he's also a very public intellectual. I mean, he's very often uh, you know on the radio or on TV or. Uh, he's a very uh, media savvy intellectual in the best sense of the term. In other words, it's not just about celebrity. It's not about being a celebrity. It really is about bringing ideas to the viewer, to the spectator, and doing so uh, eloquently and in a very, very engaging, very seductive manner. Um, perhaps the most interesting sort of thing one can say about this particular part that you know about Jean Bain in the seventies, apart from meeting uh, uh, Corbin, becoming his student was also his meeting with Foucault, Michel Foucault, uh, to whom he almost dedicated an entire monograph, but uh, instead ended up just writing uh, several articles. And I think one of the, the interesting things about, about Jean Bay's later work is, is how much of Foucault comes up uh, very, very surreptitiously. Um, he was part of a circle that was, that, uh, I, don't want, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to make it sound like it was a group that met regularly, but the French journalist Maurice Clavel uh, did try to set up a kind of salon uh, in which he included Jean Bay and Foucault. And I think the exchanges that happened there really uh, really taught Jean Bay a great deal. And then he, he went on to retransmit that information to his readers and viewers as well. Um, the other thing that's, that's worth bearing in mind is that he really has uh, a global view of philosophy. So as far as he's concerned, philosophy should be read 
as something that begins uh, with the Greeks, um, moves to Iran and uh, the so-called Middle East, but that there is really a straight line going from Ibn Sina to uh, Hegel and Mullah Sadra. And he's one of the few people who can, who can think that genealogy very clearly and very lucidly uh, w- without necessarily dividing it into Eastern and Western philosophy, etc. Yeah, the, the lineage you kind of, or the landscape you lay out in terms of genealogy of influences for Jambe was really, really fascinating in chapter three. And I think it's partly because I've just, um, I didn't know who this figure was. And so I really thoroughly enjoyed this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the theme here in this chapter is really, um, again, fascinatingly about eschatology and resurrection, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to kind of a particular moment in Nazari's smiley history of the Alamut. So can you tell us a little bit about this and why this is so influential for Champagne? Sure. So um, perhaps the the way to introduce this is by saying that Jambay is is very much alive. and and aliveness and liveliness are, are things that are that, that are central to his philosophy. Um, so having abandoned his involvement with Maoism, he, he sort of finds it again in the resurrection of Alamut. And this is really what, his, his account of the resurrection of Alamut is, is, is really fascinating and should be read by anybody, even if they have no interest in, in this mighty history, uh, simply because it teaches us that all revolution is resurrection. That, that political action makes us alive. And it's that sense of liveliness that explains so much of what people are willing to do for a given cause. We often, you know, when we're sitting on an armchair and watching, say, a protest or something, it's often amazing that, that people would do very dangerous things for ideas that they believe in. And what, what Jean Bay teaches us is that it's precisely because at that moment, they have been resurrected. At that moment, they are at the maximum of their being. And this is the thing that makes political action what it is. Um, so quite apart from completely, uh, well, quite apart from expanding the idea of revolution to include the resurrection of Alamut, um, what, what Jean Bay reminds us is that the day after the revolution, uh, there's this, everybody's, you know, there's this sort of superabundance of vitality that then gets translated into a number of uh, into a number of interventions, both hermeneutic and spiritual and theological and political and so on. Um, and so the, the idea of the law that must remain hidden uh, no longer holds. Uh, there is a belief that the, the law can now be uh, abandoned in favor of desire. Uh, but of course, this doesn't mean that we're living in a, in, a complete, in a state of complete lawlessness. What it means is that we are creating the world anew uh, with justice and with love and, and so on. So, so it's a really, uh, it's also a fulfillment of the idea that revolution has to touch the very soul of every single person who is taking part in that revolution. This is, it's this transformation of being. Uh, Mullah Sadra later on will, will speak of tabdil fil wujud. You know, it's it's a, it's a, an, a change in the very being of the person. Um, this is what makes political action what it is. The the other reason I think people should read this book is that uh, it's not very often that one reads histories of of medieval political theological revolt, um, and then suddenly stumbles upon a passage from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, and then a passage from Blanchot, uh, and so on. So the fact that all of these literary voices can coexist with the account of Alamut uh, is really is really unique and, and well worth discovering firsthand. Don't just take my word for it. Read the book. 
And and I agree. I mean, that was what was fascinating when I was reading those chapters. All of a sudden, Elliot shows up, and I was like, yeah. "What's happening?" Right? <laughs> well, and I think. Sorry, it must be said, uh, Jean Bay is, uh, really, he reads everything. He translates everything. Um, he, he has a, a wonderful translation of the Ballad of Reading Jail, for example, that I think people should, deserves to be better known. Uh, he has an excellent preface to another translation of a text by Nietzsche, of several texts by Nietzsche, and so on. He, he's just, you know, a total intellectual. He's really very good at it. He's very clever. His arguments are, are very exciting. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it it was a very fun chapter to read precisely for the reasons you're describing it, because it does. It goes from, you know, this important moment in the Zari Ismaili history of the Alamut and the way that you kind of historically teach it. But when you started talking about it in terms of uh, a resurrection and in a political level, um, it was just really fascinating to me. And so I just part of the reason I was very excited to, to hear more about this chapter from you. And then, then you know, and he you kind of end off on this chapter talking about Molasadra, as you had alluded to. Is mm-hmm. is this, um, I know this is not addressed in the book, but is this is this kind of political thought process by Jambe something that has traction today? I mean, is this something that he talks about when he is doing his intellectual public work or... Is it not something that he is like kind of mobilizing? I don't know if that makes sense. I'm just kind of curious in terms of how much of this um, philosophy or worldview is something that is um, influential in his public intellectual work. I think it's it's fairly influential, although uh, because he knows how to present his ideas, it, it doesn't always come out in, in such immense detail. So right. he does give numerous interviews, numerous essays. He's written numerous essays and so on, but it isn't always necessarily. Uh, it doesn't always necessarily come with uh, footnotes about what happened to whom, or, you know, in Alamut or after. Uh, he he does bring it up on occasion, but it isn't the only thing because, of course, there have been many revolutions. I mean, there's Alamut, right. there's the French Revolution, there's all the revolutions of the 19th and 20th centuries, and so on. So, right. um, but what what is never far from his mind really is. On one hand, the idea of political change and, and personal transformation, whether it's understood as resurrection or tabdil fulugud or metanoia or any of that, um, and, and the link between that and our political lives, that's, that's really the thing that makes this idea so, so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the epilogue really of the book brings us to kind of, um, or takes helps us take a step back. Um, mm-hmm. And you um, introduce... Um, Lionel Trilling, I hope I'm saying his last name correctly, yes, um, and the right. idea of, of authentic. Um, yeah. And so I think this is kind of the chapter or kind of the last few um, pages of the book where you're kind of situating what the esoteric, the role of the esoteric in our contemporary climate, and you yeah. related to the idea of, of being an authentic program. So can you say a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so perhaps before I do, I should confess that <laughs> the... the, the I have a problem with most of my books, which is that I, I don't really know how to end them. This isn't because I have too much to say. In fact, it's usually the opposite problem. It's just that, you know, I, I really don't know how to conclude. So I often write epilogues rather than conclusions. And this particular epilogue grew out of a conversation with Adam Phillips, who's a writer and psychoanalyst whose uh, whose ideas very often surface, you know, here and there in my, in my work. And I think I, I quote him once or twice in the book. Uh, in fact, I just realized as I was rereading the proofs that I, I might not have attributed one of the quotes, so I hope he'll forgive me. Um, 
but um, at the time we had that conversation, he was working on a book that has just come out called Unwanting to Change. And it's a book about what it means to change, what it means to be oneself, what it means to, you know, how much of yourself remains uh, after you change. It's a wonderful book, and I think everyone should read it. Um, but the idea that I was trying to get at was, without being overly instrumental, what you might get out of reading Jean Bay or of taking his ideas about resurrection seriously, or indeed about the esoteric seriously, is that it's a way to be at your maximum self or at your most alive, at your most caring, at your most loving, and uh, ipso facto, at your most authentic. So the language of authenticity, and this is where Lionel Trilling's work is really uh, is really helpful, the language of authenticity has tended to be uh, couched in terms of true and false, uh, hypocritical and sincere, and so on, whereas uh, it might be more more helpful to to revisit those distinctions, both in terms of the literary histories that Lionel Trilling uses in his book, which is really a wonderful book, but also in terms of the ideas of the esoteric that I tried to present in, uh, via Massignon, Corbin, and Jean Bé. Um, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure how well it works. I mean, I'll 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 really count on you to tell me, but but this is this is what I'm getting at there in in the epilogue, basically. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's helpful for us to kind of take a step back and look at the the broader kind of um, image that you've constructed for us. And really, it, feel, it felt like a, um, a mapping or a genealogy of like vast intellectual um, exchanges, right, which mm-hmm. I think is um, very much in line with your past scholarship as well, this yeah. being more from a philosophical um, intellectual trajectory. So I think, yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, are, are there any aspects of the book, perhaps, that we haven't touched on that you would like to, to touch on before we um, conclude or turn to our final traditional question? Um, no, I think you've, you've pretty much covered it all. I just hope people people enjoy the book. Actually, I hope they enjoy the book, but that they don't, uh, but that as, while they're reading it, I want them to stop reading it, go and read Massignon, Corbin, Jean Bay, and then when they hit a roadblock, they can come back to my book and you know maybe I can help them navigate the thickets of, of the esoteric in those three thinkers. Yeah, and I think that's a really good suggestion. It seems like a, a good book to kind of complement and guide folks through some of the primary um, texts that you're, you're gesturing towards in this book as well. Yeah. And it's a great resource in that sense. Um, so I've taken up so much of your time, and I, I guess my final question to you is, I know it's it's the pandemic and we're all surviving, but are there things that you were working on before or things that you're kind of slowly um, working on now as we're um, trying to all stay safe? <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, I've, well, something uh, really unexpected and wonderful happened last summer, which is that I got a, a fellowship from the British Academy and Leverhulme Trust to support a new project. So what I'm working on now is the title, of the, the working title of the project is Racism and Slavery in Contemporary Arabic Literature and Culture. Um, mm-hmm. Or more sort of in a more pedestrian note, I'm really interested in South-South racisms. Um, we've all been, I think, We've all seen the coverage of, say, the slave markets that, grew, that cropped up in Syria immediately, after, in Libya, sorry, immediately after the, the collapse of the Gaddafi regime. There's been a lot of coverage of, of the appalling treatment meted out to migrant workers from South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, in, in the GCC countries and, and elsewhere in the so-called Middle East. Um, the, the material has been covered fairly thoroughly in the social sciences. In other words, the data's there, the studies are there. The, 
the conclusions are there. Uh, a lot of a lot of organizations and charities regularly publish reports about these questions, HRW and many others. But what I what I I'm trying to get at is what I'm trying to deal with is the fact that in, in the field of literature specifically, uh, it's not a conversation that seems to be happening, or if it is happening, it's happening too quickly and and too superficially. So the question I'm trying to address really is how do these racisms work? To what extent do they depend on uh, the history of slavery in the region, especially the massive increase in slavery in the 19th century? And um, and then if all goes well, maybe even. Uh, once we figure out how they how they work, we can find ways to make them stop. Um, we've there have been over the past decade many attempts, uh, serious and, and benevolent attempts, at reforming reforming systems like the kafala system in the Gulf countries, for example. But there's only so much the authorities can do, and the question we have to ask ourselves is: Well, if it's not a if it's if it's if there are legal blocks and there are political blocks, then the reason the explanation is probably cultural. And one way of getting at that, at the reasons behind these problems, could be by by looking into the cultural and um, literary bases of these discriminatory practices. It sounds like a very timely project, and I, I look forward to the final outcome. Thank you. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, congratulations also on the fellowship. Thank you. To support the fellowship, that's amazing. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast to talk about your fantastic new book. Um, I hope the listeners will pick it up and explore more. Um, and I wish you all the best with your future work. Thank you very, very much. This was fun. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Professor Ziad Al-Marsafi about his new book, Esoteric Islam in Modern French Thought, Messignon, Corban, and Jambé. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay safe.